Thank you. Good evening. Nice to see you, to see you. Yes, that won't work if you're watching this at home on the TV, but it's nice to be in the room uh, in honor of Brucey. And uh, we're going to be looking, yeah, as, as we've just heard, at the book of Acts, I think in most of this week, looking at the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible, then you can be in Acts chapter 4. That would be brilliant, Acts chapter 4. Um, I want to speak to you tonight on the subject of both and Christianity. Both and, as opposed to either or Christianity. Both and. And embracing the bits of Christianity that often get separated and holding them both together. It's in some ways, it's an appeal to you as a group of churches to hold on to both and elements of Christianity that so often get separated into either or. You may know that German reformer Martin Luther said that the human race is like a person who falls off a horse and then gets back on the horse and then falls off the other side. That's what we do all the time. So we, we continually overcorrect and we play things against each other that shouldn't be played off against each other. And my appeal to you tonight is to pursue, as a movement of churches, as individuals, to pursue both and Christianity. And we're going to look at a chapter uh, in Acts chapter 4, which I hope is going to help us do that. And for me, in some ways, this is a very unusual message because, well, for two reasons, really. The first is it's the first time I've ever chosen a text by crowdsourcing on Twitter. So I chose this text for this message on Twitter where I just said, hey, guys, if you had to preach a message on why you were both reformed and charismatic, how would you describe, which text would you use? And loads of people came back, and Acts chapter 4 was the best text that came back, and I thought, I could preach a message on that. And so the, what you're going to hear tonight is based on a crowdsource poll that I did on social media. And that's odd for me. I've never done it before. And the other thing that's odd about this message is it's like a vision message to a group of churches that I don't lead and I don't even belong to. So I feel a bit of a humbug up here saying, you guys should be this, and now I'm just by, and then I'm going to go and do something else. But... Both and Christianity, holding on to poles or extremes that are often not held together. I want to illustrate a bit what I mean by that before we read from my own life story. So you don't know me, but um, I, was, I was born into a Christian family. My parents, my dad's actually here tonight, and hey, and uh, that was a little bit half-baked, but I wasn't expecting a big hey. But he was, uh, my parents both became believers separately from each other in the 10 days before they got married, which is quite a nice start to the story. Do I get an R for that a little bit? It's nice, isn't it? And, uh, and they, they became believers in a, a very, very conservative, famous preaching church, Reformed Theology. Have you ever heard of a man called Dick Lucas? It's a church called St. Helens Bishopsgate in London. They became believers there in a very you would say very conservative, high value on preaching, on theology, on the Bible, pretty nervous slash hostile about charismatic gifts at the time, and to a degree now, and they became believers into that church. And I was talking to my dad about it recently, and he said, I'll never forget the way that the, the vicar of the church shared the gospel with me on the night that I went round to his home saying, I think I've sort of had an encounter with God. What do I do? And I told him my story in my 20s. And this older man in his 40s at the time, I think, just turned to him and said, well, that's, that's very interesting, Mr. Wilson. 
Imagine calling someone 20 years younger than you, Mr. Wilson. That's what they used to do back then. That's very interesting, Mr. Wilson. But it, it doesn't really matter what you think. What matters is what the Bible says. I think, imagine saying that to someone who wanted to become a Christian. And that kind of foundation of a very high view of Scripture and of doctrine and of theology and of the gospel and of preaching got embedded into my Christian life before I was even born. I got baptized into that church as a baby. I've since been baptized as a believer, but back then I was christened as a baby. And I grew up with a home where people would quote the Bible and expect you to believe it and actually to trust it and to know that God had revealed himself and wanted to speak to you all the time out of a book and that you didn't just have to go, ah, now what do I think God is saying? You read what God is saying. And I grew up in a home where that was true. But at the same time, I grew up in a home where a few years after that, my parents said, do you know what we're going to do? They didn't say it like this because I was only five, I think. But they said, we're going to go and join a crazy charismatic commune in the woods, which is not quite what it was, but pretty much. And my first memories of church were not in this reformed preaching church, but in this experience where charismatic Christians take over a village and they all end up living in one another's pockets and people turn up at the door, ding dong, somebody arrives, here's a chicken. Oh, that's great. We needed something for dinner tonight. Do you need any shoes for your kids? Oh, yeah, great. Off they go down. That People were living in my home the whole time as a child in this crazy sort of whirlwind of a charismatic community where people would, the ground staff who looked after the building would come onto the property a long way away from the facility, and they'd come under conviction of sin, and they'd fall on their knees and cry out for salvation. And I grew up with spiritual gifts just exploding in a church. And so I went from one of these experiences to the other one, and I didn't know it was weird. And you all know it's weird. You all know churches should not do this. You can't have a high view of the Bible and be bouncing off the walls with spiritual gifts. That would never happen anymore, right? But I grew up thinking that was what you do. And we sort of swung and then ended up back in Anglican church and then came to a New Frontiers church into which I was baptized at 14. And I've been in that kind of church and help lead that kind of church and help teach in that kind of church ever since. And my life and my, our lives as a family have been heavy, as a, and me, and I, my, the kids I now have, our lives have been dramatically shaped by both a strong, robust emphasis on theology and a strong, robust emphasis on spiritual gifts. And my appeal to you is not just to, to affirm that as something that you believe but not to settle, but to keep pursuing both and Christianity. I am, I, I'll tell you two brief stories about how the charismatic has shaped my Christian life, right? One, and we will turn to the Bible in a moment, don't worry, but one of them is, this just helps give you context by what I mean by both and Christianity. One of them is, I was in a room with a lot of other pastors and a prophetic guy was just beginning to, he hadn't even preached, he just gets up as prophetic people do and sort of barges in, you know, sort of starts prophesying over people, and he gets the first two absolutely right, like doesn't know these people, bing, this is true for you, bing, this is true for me, comes to me, and I'm, I don't know, 24, 25, that sort of thing, and he points at me and he says, I can see manuscripts, and an editor is going to approach you, and you should write the book that you have in your heart to write. That morning... As I'd gone into the office, the only thing I'd done was to open my email, and in my inbox was an email from an editor saying, we would like to publish this book that we've seen that you did as an article for your church website. We'd like to turn it into a book. 
An hour later, two hours later perhaps, I'm in a room with a prophetic guy who has never, to my knowledge, has never even seen me before. And he picks me out and says, you're to write the book that the editor is going to ask you to write. So I went, okay, maybe I should, right? So that's a, I've been shaped by that. That's what my life has been about ever since. And then a year and a half, two years ago, two, no, two and a half years ago, we were in a, a prayer meeting as a family in my church, which at the time, I'm now at a church in London, but at the time I was in a church in Eastbourne, and uh, thank you, whoop, whoop, and, uh, and we're there, and there is a, there's a prayer meeting going on, and people are praying for the women who are going off to a women's conference, and a guy in the church comes up and just prays over my wife, and is praying for her, and, and just says, uh, God has heard your Hannah's prayer, and he's going to confirm it to you that he's heard you this weekend with the word of two or three witnesses. And we had been praying about whether or not, we hadn't told anybody. We hadn't told my parents. We hadn't told Rachel's parents. We thought we'd had a challenging time with our older two children who have special needs, and it had not been an easy time. And we were beginning to think maybe we could try and have a third child, but we feel really nervous about it because we don't know if we'll be okay if we do. And we began praying about it and told no one. And he then says, God has heard your Hannah's prayer. Hannah, if you know, the story is the woman who's asking God for a baby. And he says he's going to confirm it this weekend by the word of two or three witnesses. So Rachel goes off to the conference. Friday night, she's sitting talking to a close friend and says, the thing is, I heard this word, but I need confirmation because I, this is what she said. She said, I feel like if we were going to have a third child in our family, we would need kind of a third adult in our family as well. Otherwise, I don't know how we would cope. Conversation finishes. No one else she tells about it goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, comes into the conference, completely different person comes up and says, I was praying for you, and I got this picture of your kitchen table with three children's chairs and three adults' chairs sitting around it. And so we thought, I think God may be speaking to us here. <laughs> maybe, maybe we could have another baby. Maybe we could even see if... God will give us a child like he gave a child to Hannah. And when he was born, we named him Samuel, which means God hears, because he does. He's now 16 months old. So my life has been in two very little ways, but in many, many, many other ways, has been dramatically shaped by the prophetic. But it's also, I would, the way I'd characterize it is, that sort of ministry is often is like the powerful crashing waves that come pounding in upon you that you can see. And underneath it is this sort of mighty undercurrent of the word of God that like hooks you, kicking and screaming into the likeness of Christ, even if you didn't see it. Have you found that? Sometimes there's these dramatic moments that are pounding in. Whoa, did you see that wave? And then underneath it, there's this huge, powerful current pulling you along, almost against yourself sometimes saying, you will become more like Jesus as you read this book and do what it says. You are going to find your life is built on rock even when you don't realize that it is. And that combination, that both and, has been integral to the, who I have, by the grace of God, become. And I, I guess it's my appeal to you as well. With all of that in mind, let's read from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. When they were the released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. This is the apostles. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God. As we go through this passage, we're going to find seven pairs of both ands that characterize the church in this text. And I'm, I, there, there's seven pairs that I believe could challenge us not to settle in our pursuit of biblical Christianity. Not to pause and think, Do you know what, we've, we've nailed that. We've actually got it. We're, yeah, kind of charismatic and kind of biblical. Yeah, let's stay there. But actually, guys, stay on the horse. Stay on the horse. Be both and Christians. And there's seven pairs. And the f- first one that I find in verse 23, let's be people who combine in our prayer life, combine urgency and depth, right? Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, noisy, upbeat prayers where everyone's praying at once, and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. They they lifted their voices together. I love charismatic prayer meetings. I love prayer meetings of urgency. I love being in prayer meetings with people like there are in this room where we're calling out together urgently, God, you've got to do something. Prayer meetings of urgency. And I also love prayer meetings where there is depth, where people begin prayers saying things like, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and who spoke through the mouth of David saying, "Why?" Do, and then a big quote from a psalm comes out. I love it when there's prayers with depth. I love listening to prayers that have been shaped by a lifetime of reading Scripture and meditating on the Psalms and using good prayers and learning good hymns and liturgies and knowing how to pray in thoughtful, careful ways. And I love both, and I find they don't always go together. I find that sometimes prayer meetings, prayers that come off the top of your head can be very urgent, but I don't know, have you ever done this? Yeah, Father Lord Jesus, I just hang on a second, who's Father Lord Jesus? Who's that guy? Never heard of him. And just sometimes you pray off the top of your head and out comes a little bit of gobbledygook, if we're honest, right? Urgency, but not a lot of depth. And then sometimes you get prayers where there's immense depth, but it sounds as if it's not very urgent. It's not very desperate. It goes like this. 
Heavenly Father, we... And that's how they all start. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting with a certain type of person, there will be a long silence, and then there's this little noise that goes, and then they go, Heavenly Father, we... And off they go. They always start like that. And, they, and it sounds like we've got all the time in the world. It sounds like we could be at Lord's in the second afternoon of a match that England are certainly going to win. It doesn't sound like people are desperately saying, Oh, Lion of the tribe of Judah, would you come and help us? And yet... It's difficult to retain both the urgency and the depth. And I would encourage us, I would encourage you to be people who pursue prayers of both urgency and depth. This church is a both-and church. They are shaped by a desperate need. They are being persecuted. And as they come together, their default mode in prayer is to begin affirming doctrine about God and quoting the Psalms because that's what they do. They've had a whole lifetime of being shaped by the Psalms and as a result they pray naturally with scripture just spilling out. We shoot for being people who are both and Christians in the way we pray. Urgency and depth. Second, let's be people who understand prayer and sovereignty. I'm getting this from verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the earth and the heavens? And you think, why are they starting there? They've just heard this persecution story, and now they're moving to declare the sovereignty of God. And sometimes, in our kind of world, people see those two as almost opposites. If you, you pray or you trust the sovereignty of God. In fact, sometimes people, I've often been asked this question as a pastor, if God is sovereign... Why pray? Because God is already in control of everything. He's already decided what will happen, so why would I pray? And my answer tends to want to be, if God isn't sovereign, why would you pray? If God can't do what you're asking him to do, what are you praying for? These guys operated in that kind of paradigm, and they're saying, this is something really painful is happening. You are sovereign. You are in charge of everything. They're about to talk about his plan and his predestination. And as a result of that, not in spite of it, they come to him in prayer. And they say, God, would you do what only you can do? Would you break in? Would you bring power? That's an amazing combination. They think that it means swallowing some mystery. It does. It means saying, do you know what? I don't quite get how prayer affects God if God already knows what will happen. I don't quite get how that happens, but I'd rather live with that mystery than end up ditching prayer or ditching the sovereignty of God. Stay on the horse. Stay on the horse. Affirm both prayer and sovereignty. There's a friend of mine who's um, planting a church in the Middle East, in a big Middle Eastern city, and it's tough going. I remember the first time I heard him share about some of the challenges of church planting and he was in tears, like properly crying as he was telling us what's going on with him and with his kids and with his family. And I, this is a tough, tough situation. And as he was talking about it, one of the things he said that really hit home to me, he said, do you know, at times like this, it's really helpful. And he, the words he used were, it's really helpful to be reformed and charismatic. And what he mean, meant by that was, it's really helpful to be people with a very big view of the sovereignty of God at the same time as a very big view of the power of God to break in at any moment. Because he says, when you're planting a church in a tough situation like this, what you do is you have to trust God and dig in for the long haul, trusting that ultimately God is working all things for good, and yet pray on a daily basis for his power to mightily break in, sweep away your enemies, and make things right. And being theologically both and really helps when you're doing something tough. 
in my life in the last few years, it's often been like parenting challenges where I've faced the coal face of that and found it hard. Where in his case, it was church planting. In your case, it will be many other things. But as we affirm both the sovereignty of God and his power to break in at any moment, we will find that we can hold together prayer, desperate prayer, and an affirmation of God's sovereign might and power at the same time. We can be both and, prayer and sovereignty. And these, for these disciples in Acts, God's sovereignty was the reason their prayers were going to be effective. If he wasn't sovereign, they wouldn't have bothered, and neither would I. Third, right? We're just going through pairs, right? Urgency and depth, prayer and sovereignty. Third pair, we've got to be those who accept both divine and human activity in the same moment. Divine and human. Obviously, we believe that of Jesus already. I trust Jesus is divine and human. But actually, we have to affirm divine and human activity in the same moments in the world. And I see that in two places in this text. The first is in the writing of Scripture itself in verse 25. So if you read verse 25, they pray, Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage? You notice that? Lord, who through the mouth of your servant David said, by the Holy Spirit. God, through the mouth of David, who is your servant, by the Spirit. What is happening here? Who is speaking in this text? Is it David, your servant, or is it the Lord by the Spirit? And the answer is yes. It is both God and David at the same time, one by means of the other. And that's the way Scripture is inspired from beginning to end. Every time you open this book, you find quirky characters expressing their personalities and their agendas and their ideas and their perceptions. And at the same time, through those broken vessels, you find the infallible word of God coming clear as a bell through broken, messed up people. That's what happens every time you open this book. You think Luke didn't have an agenda when he was writing what we've just read? Of course he did. But God speaks through the person. And so it's both divine and human at the same time. I love that way of thinking about what the Bible is. I love it. The idea, sometimes we're inclined to think like in terms of divine and human activity like a seesaw, right? God's, actually God's not going to be at that end, is he? God's heavier than us. God's the fat, the fat kid at the end, right? So the seesaw goes down, right? And then, and we're up. So if God's at one end, we're up in the air. So the lower God goes, the higher we go and vice versa. It tips like this, right? So if it's 100% God, it's 0% us. That's how we tend to think. And it's totally unbiblical. The writers of Scripture don't think that the more God does, the less you do. That's, not, that's, not, that's either or. It's actually the writers of Scripture think both and about the inspiration of Scripture. In some ways, the way they think about it is more like the way you think about who said to be or not to be. That is the question. Who said that? Hamlet or Shakespeare? Both of them. And in fact, the more Shakespeare said, the more Hamlet said. And some of us think, if Shakespeare said a little bit less, we could have all got home a bit earlier. The play's four hours. But actually, the more one of them says, the more the other one says. That's the relationship we're dealing with with Scripture. We're not talking about a seesaw. We're talking about a Hamlet arrangement. And actually, the one of them is speaking by means of and through the other, which doesn't diminish Hamlet's agency at all. In fact, it makes Hamlet who he is. Hamlet is speaking freely, off the top of his head, God is acting freely. And I wouldn't say off the top of his head because that would sound irreverent, but you know what I mean. So I see that's an evangelical doctrine of Scripture. And these guys have it. 
God who spoke through David, your servant, by the Spirit. It's not a seesaw. It's a Hamlet deal. So I see that divine and human relationship working there. I also see it at work in verses 26 to 28 when they describe why Jesus was killed. You thought about this? Who killed Jesus? Is it the the bad people? Or did God want it to happen all along? Yes! You're getting the hang of it now, aren't you? Both and, right? Verses 26 to 28. The kings of the earth, they pray, set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together, right, like Pilate and Herod and so on, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. At which point you say, hang on a second. If God's plan has predestined it, then these guys can't be villains. They can't be bad. They must be doing good things, right? Pilate, Herod, they're goodies. The soldier doing the whipping, they're all great. Surely if God wanted it, and or you go the other way and you say, no, if this is villainous, then God must have hated it. And the apostles say, no, 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 no. We have a both-and situation here. We had people are doing it for wicked reasons. God is doing it ultimately for good reasons, for glorious reasons. That means any of us can be here. And they're both happening at the same time, not like a seesaw, but like a Hamlet deal. And the same thing happens throughout our Christian life. Am I a Christian? Like that story I told you, my parents both becoming believers in the 10 days before they got married, separately from each other. Is, is, was that because they made a great decision or was that because God made a decision? And the answer is yes. Am I going to persevere in faith because I persevere doggedly or because God preserves me miraculously? Yes. You really are now getting the hang of it, I can tell. Right? And sometimes it's tempting to drift into either or. <gasps> if God is sovereign, you don't need to preach the gospel. Or, actually, because it's all on us, something bad happens. Oh, that's just because of bad people or Satan. God had nothing to do with it. He would never hurt a fly. And actually, on both sides, there is, you're falling off the horse. The early church went both and. They said, these people did terrible things that were sinful and wicked to your servant Jesus. And they did it because your plan was working all things together for good, and you had predestined this to take place. I'm not saying I can fix that for you. I'm not saying I can make it easy to understand. There is mystery here, as there often is in Scripture. I am simply saying, don't fall off the horse. Don't, in trying to figure out the mystery, just gradually lean over, and then you find yourself in a pile of stirrups being trampled on by whatever... What are are those things called on their feet? Hooves? No, 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 the things they wear on the hooves. Horseshoes, horseshoes, that's the word I wanted. But yes, they do also have hooves, just to clarify. Right? So let's accept and in fact celebrate both divine and human. Right? That was the longest one. Fourth one, let's pursue both the word and the spirit. I get this from verse 29 and 30. And now this is how they finish their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What a great prayer. Praying like that. Lord, give us power that we may preach the word boldly and that your spirit, in fact, they don't say the word spirit here, but I think that's the gist of the miraculous here, that through your, the name of your servant Jesus, that signs and wonders and healings would be worked through us. And so as they bring both the Word and the Spirit together, you think that, I know that's a passion of this group of churches. I know that's why most of us are here. Many of you have had that passion since before I was born. 
I just say, keep going. Keep going. Stay on the horse. They are so easy to fall off, so easy for somebody. What we do is we overcorrect. That's how you fall off a horse, right? You, you feel like we're wobbling. That person said something a little bit charismatic and wacky. That suggests to me that these things are all a little bit too weird, and maybe we need to lean further into the one further and further to the point that the spirit gets lost, and then you fall off. Or you think, that guy's a bit conservative and a bit cautious and a bit uptight. He doesn't expect the same fire as I do. And, oh, maybe I'll just overcorrect and be a bit more. But now I'm being drawn to this more crazy thing, more crazy. And then you fall off. Stay on the horse. Stay on the horse. Keep going. And sometimes the churches that see a lot of healing, for instance, do not necessarily speak with boldness out of the word of God on the issues of the day. They might not be the ones speaking with clarity and courage on the authority of Scripture or on racial injustice or on sexuality or on Trump. They might not be. They might actually, some of it depends where you are. Some of those things take courage, and they may not be the churches where that's happening. On the other hand, the churches that do speak with clarity and courage about those things not only may not see very much healing, they may actively teach against it. And so there is temptation on both sides to fall off. And my appeal is, be like the Jerusalem church, both and, so it feels completely natural for you to say, Lord, we need your help to speak the word of God with courage because there are a lot of people out there who hate the word. And would you please stretch out your hand and work signs and wonders and heal great many people? And that the two of those feel so together that it feels almost odd to have one without the other. Don't settle. Speak with boldness. Heal with power. Stay on the horse. Pursue the word and the spirit. Fifth. There's seven pairs, by the way, in case you're worried. Uh, there's only, only, I say only seven. That's plenty, right? Fifth. Let's live in unity and radicalism. I'm getting this from verse 32, where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I described to you the, the, where I, the church, which I, my first experience of church was, it was radical, right? It was kind of wacky, but it was radical, and people did this. They sold what they owned. They lived in common, meal, whatever it was. They did it. But actually, it can be difficult to hold together radicalism, the prophetic, edgy, we are doing what the Word of God says, even when it sounds crazy, it can be hold, difficult to hold that together with unity. We will speak well and delight in and honor and respect all of our brothers and sisters, however different from us they are. Because if you want to emphasize unity, it can lead to, yeah, do you know what? If you don't really like the way we do that, okay, we'll stop doing it. Okay, no, we won't do that. Yeah, we will. All right, let's all just be a bit vanilla. And similarly, if you emphasize radicalism, it can be like, we found what God was saying all along, and therefore, we don't really need you guys. And both of them, actually, you can fall off the horse. The tax collector can eventually turn into a Pharisee. You can say, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like that Pharisee over there. We can do that. We can disregard brothers and sisters who we may regard as insufficiently radical. And of course, they may think the same of us in other ways. The Jerusalem church managed to combine unity. Now, the full number of those who believed were together in heart and soul. And they combined that with the, one of the most radical churches ever to be built anywhere, that they sold whatever they had and lived in common. They were both united and radical. You might even say they were radically united. They were zealously together. Let's be zealous 
while thinking well of and speaking well of those who do Christianity very differently from us. It's a whole bunch of Christians in the world who would see the meeting we're in even now and would think, I'm not even sure that's Christian. And some of our, our heart towards those people has to be to be, we love you as brothers and sisters and we disagree about important stuff and that's okay. We are going to continue pursuing Christ and we are going to love and honor and speak well of you as far as we are able. Let's be radically united. Sixth, both and in this text, let's be characterized by power and grace. Right? Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. all right, this overlaps with the previous point, but it's worth highlighting anyway. Power and grace, the Spirit and the Word, should come together and naturally flow together, but sometimes, in practice, they don't always. Historically, those with a very strong emphasis on the grace of God have not always been the most active in pursuing the power of God. And if you look around the world today, you might say that pursuing power can place an undue emphasis on works as distinct from grace. It can be easy to say, if you want power, you need to do this, 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 this. I heard a very insightful throwaway remark about some, some big Christian platform ministries. Uh, from, I'd even forgotten who said it, but they just said, you know, you can see it sometimes on television. Legalism with a smile. It was the line he used. Legalism with a smile. And I thought, I, I, know what you, I know what that is. People who grin, they're like, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. But in the you can, you can do this, here's the power, you can do this, 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 this. Actually, you end up producing law rather than grace, and you can end up emphasizing power or breakthrough to the exclusion of the grace of God by mistake. Similarly, you can preach grace so much that actually you don't focus on the power of God and what God wants to do here and now and will do if you ask him to. May we, like the Jerusalem church, be characterized by, in this verse, great grace and great power. And then finally, seventh, let's be a people like the Jerusalem church of generosity and submission. Now, that's a strange word to throw in at the end. I'll show you where I'm getting it. In verse 34 to 35, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. If you read anything about early Christianity, you read it in the Bible, you read it in the history of the early church, the church fathers, you will be struck almost more than by anything else about how frequently and passionately they talk about the need to be generous to the poor. I've read there'd be bunch of church fathers I've read where I think they are clearer on the need to be generous to the poor than they are on how a person becomes a Christian at all. I really mean that. I, I think church fathers I've read where I think, I don't know if you believe in justification by faith or not, but I know you are very clear that Christians have to be generous to the poor. It's, I'm not saying therefore it's more important. I'm just saying, do you see, it's a very, very strong focus in a lot of the early church and certainly even in scripture as well. Generosity to the poor is a non-negotiable. And yet, there is a way of being generous to the poor that seeks to retain control over either what they do or over the people to whom you give the money do with your money. Because you still think of it as your money. And there's going to be a story immediately after this text about a couple who did pretty much that. Ananias and Sapphira get struck down for giving a huge sum but trying to retain control over some of it. In their case, of course, they withheld it. 
And Barnabas is held up as an example because he just comes in, sells the field, gives all of it, plonks it at the apostles' feet, and then goes, well, you guys figure it out. And off he goes. He doesn't have strings attached. He doesn't say, this, needs, this percentage needs to be in this ministry that I like. And Could you give that over there? He doesn't do that. He just drops it at their feet and disappears. There is a submission in generosity that Barnabas models, which is why he's commended, and that the church as a whole seems to have practiced. And it can be difficult for us. If you have a lot of money, it can be difficult to let it go at the feet of somebody you may not know that well, and you may think may not be as smart a business person as you are, and submit it to their governance while you say, I'm going to have nothing to do with any more of this. Now, there's many in this room who have done that faithfully for decades, and I commend you. But it can be tough. I think some of us would know it can be tough. I find it hard sometimes. You give generously, and yet in this church, they, they're both and. They give with generosity and submission. They say, I'm just going to give loads and leave it to you to decide what you do with the money. And I love that about the Jerusalem church. They don't try and gain influence or power or shaping of the budget through their generosity. They just say, God's given me a lot of stuff. He's given some people less. Here it is. Give it to whoever you like. Thanks. That attitude of generosity and submission, as we conclude, is a massively helpful, very, very practical way of many of us applying the both and thing we've been seeing throughout this text. Brothers and sisters, let's remember the poor in our churches and let's do it with generosity and submission. The Jerusalem church was a both and church. I hope if you get nothing else, you've heard that. They're a both and church, right? They, they didn't fall off the horse on any number of things, even in this short passage, and there would be other examples we could use, they were so clear, both that God was at work and what they need to do, both of the grace of God and of the power of God, both of the need for the word and for the need for the spirit, both that when God spoke in scripture, it was human and divine, and in fact, that when bad things happened in the world, it was human and divine, because God is ultimately in charge of all things, and yet underneath it, human beings might do terrible things with the responsibility he's given us. They knew that you needed to give with generosity and submission. They knew you needed to pray with urgency and depth. And they found a way of combining those things, which they no doubt learned from Jesus. And on their, after their example, I would commend to you that kind of life as individuals, as churches, as a movement. And anybody who's watching this on the TV anywhere in the world, don't settle for anything less than both and Christianity. Stay on the horse. Amen? I wonder if I could invite you to stand, and I'd just love us to pray along the lines that they did, and the band will come out and help us, and then we'll sing together as well. I want us to pray in a way that stays on the horse. This is what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage, and so on? For truly in this city, they were gathered against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, all of these bad guys, to do whatever you had planned them to do. Now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with great boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And I'm wondering if we could 
if you're up for this, just lift our hands. And some of us do this really loudly. That's great. Some of us are not confident doing that in a setting like this. These guys will make a row in a minute, and it'll help you. But don't worry. If don't, I'm not trying to spook anybody. But could we lift our hands and begin to pray that God would do both of those things in the churches and communities that we represent? Lord, help us to be those who speak the word with great boldness. And we, let's lift your voices with me, if you would. Let's, Lord, we want to speak the word with boldness, and we want to see great many healings. Lord, we pray that you would give us the power, the authority, the weight, the understanding of Scripture, the courage to speak the word, even when it's unpopular, even when it's under attack, even when it costs us our jobs. We pray for courage to speak the word. At the same time, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal in mighty power, to work signs and wonders, to destroy the works of the devil, to overthrow everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ, to drive out sicknesses and demons and all of Satan's works. Oh God, may we be both and people. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, God.